Acts chapter 10. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so we're going to have to be really attentive to the scriptures. Uh, Acts chapter 10 and half of Acts chapter 11. And the title of the sermon is Peter the Apostle, Bigot, and Jerk. I know, it's not very kind. I'm trying to be somewhat provocative. There is a bit of truth in it. Um, I'm sure Peter will have much to say to me when I get to heaven. I've picked on him a lot in my sermons. He's an easy target. Uh, Perhaps I do so because I identify with him a lot. But we kind of see this portrayed in this text. We're going to approach it differently because there's so much text to cover. I'm going to pray right now, say a few prefatory comments, and then we'll read the entire text together. Um, We'll put it on the screen as well, and then we'll talk about what this means for us. So let's pray. Father, as we sang of this morning, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for the grace that has been shown to us and brought to us in the person of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you that our standing before you now, Father, is in grace. Thank you that you have given us the person of the Holy Spirit who pours the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. And we pray that your love for us and for the world would be made evidential in your word today and in the preaching of your word and our comprehending of it. We pray that because of your love and your mission by the work of the Spirit, you would align our lives with your truth. Where there's incongruencies between the way that we think and what your word says, the way that we're living and what your word says, would you lovingly point those out through the work of your word and your spirit and bring us into alignment with your will as your people that we might live for the glory of Jesus and not merely for ourselves as we tend to do. I humble myself before you, Lord, and before the church and I ask that by grace you would anoint me and fill me with the Holy Spirit to teach and preach in a way that is humble and faithful and helpful. We ask these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, theologically speaking, the text before us is incredibly important. It's really important as we think about salvific history or the history of God's work of salvation through Jesus going forward in the world. Salvation history. This is a really important text. And here's how we'll frame it up. We'll kind of look at the whole scope of the Bible. Genesis and Revelation. You'll remember the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis chapter 12. We talk about this frequently enough. Where the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant that God made with Abraham way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And the part that's salient for us is and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the beginning of the unfolding of salvation history. God's work of saving people from their sins and the penalty and the power of sin. And when God said this to Abraham, he meant from that one person, he would create a nation, Israel. Through that nation would come the Messiah, Jesus. With that Messiah would be followers, us, who would take the gospel to the world. And the end game, which we also know very well, is in Revelation chapter 7. 
where John, receiving the revelation, says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, symbols of victory and freedom. So way back in the beginning in Genesis, God said, I have a plan to bless all the families of the whole world. And then way at the end in the book of Revelation, we see people from all the families in the whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation saved and around the throne of Jesus in worship and in gratitude. So we see the beginning of salvation history and there in the future, the end of salvation history. The question is, how do we get from Genesis to Revelation? You know exactly how we get there. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So that people might be saved. The way that we get there or what compels or propels the mission is the love of God. God said what he said in Genesis 12 because he loves people. And he loves bad people. Can I get an amen? amen? Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. He loves people and he loves bad people. God loves the world. And so then Jesus said, as we know, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. God has a plan to bless the whole world. It's through Jesus because God so loves the world. He gave his son, Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and rose again and told his followers to go and make disciples of all the nations because the plan is for all the nations. And in the end, in glory around the throne will be every tongue, tribe, and nation. Salvation history unfolding in our lives and in the book of Acts. The problem in the book of Acts is that the disciples have not yet penetrated a 40-mile radius from where it all started. We're a couple years into the book of Acts now, and they have stayed generally in the same area, some small forays out to Samaria and the areas around Jerusalem, but they've not really gone more than 40 miles from where it went down. And they're supposed to go to the whole world. Not only within geography, though, but also within cultural and religious bounds, they've not taken the gospel beyond Jewish bounds. There were Samaritans who were Jewish and other half-breeds, but it has stayed predominantly in Jewish circles. But remember, God is concerned about all the nations, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is a Bible word for anyone who's not a Jew. So it stayed in a small radius. It stayed within a single people group. But the call on both Israel and the church was to be a light to the nations. All the nations. So what we see in our text today, when we get there, is that God is now forcing the issue. You remember the issue got forced a little bit earlier when persecution broke out and it kind of caused them to fan out a little bit. The issue got forced in chapter 9, the previous chapter, when Saul, the church persecutor, was confronted by Jesus and becomes Paul the apostle. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, ultimately. So God's forcing the issue there as well. But in this story that we'll read in a moment, God is once again forcing the issue because he's got a plan for the salvation through Jesus for all the nations. So in our text, we're going to see a Gentile a non-Jewish person and his entire household and all of his friends, all of his buddies get saved at the same time in a very strategic location that finally penetrates outside that 40-mile circle and a place which would become the entryway to the, or was, but would become for the gospel, the entryway to the then known world. 
gospel would pump forth from there. So again, God is forcing the issue. We'll see in our text that he does throw, so through supernatural intervention, we'll see visions, there'll be angels talking to people, there'll be prophetic words, prophetic leadings, and there will also be a profound challenge from God to Peter, whom he loves. He will lovingly challenge Peter's point of view on culture and other people. He's going to challenge Peter's point of view on culture and other people. And he'll do so, he'll do so, excuse me, God, because he is love and he has a mission. And Peter's point of view on culture and other people was incompatible with the love of God and the mission of God. So God's going to fix it. So we're going to read the whole chapter together now with that little brief introduction. It's long, it's 48 verses. Are you going to be okay? I'm going to be okay. I've read it like 15 times this week, so I'm, I'm ready for it. You've got to follow along in your Bibles. We'll put it on the screen in case you don't have a Bible so you don't get lost and your mind doesn't wander so much. So we want you to follow. It is a good idea to bring a Bible uh, next time. If you have one, we'll take a slightly different approach. At a couple points while reading through, we'll pause. I'll say pause, and I'll just comment on a couple little things that will help us understand what we're reading. Just small stuff, a little background, contextual stuff. And then when we get the end of reading that and some of chapter 11, we'll take a broad view stroke uh, of what God is doing there, or look at what God is doing, and explore how that affects us now. So I'm going to pause and take a drink of water. And we're going to read this whole thing with a couple pauses to explain. I'll even show some pictures. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1, NIV. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. All right, let's pause right there. Let's talk about who Cornelius is for just a moment. We see that he is a leader in the Roman army, something called the Italian Regiment. You remember that we are in Israel at this point, and Israel is occupied by Rome. They are the dominant world force, so he's one of the power holders. And he is a, what is known in Judaism as a God-fearer. That means that he respects and pursues to some degree the God of the Jews, right? The God of the Bible. But he's not converted to, to Judaism. That was a hard thing. You had to keep the law. You had to get circumcised. That was kind of a bummer at an older age. So some people who were interested in the God of the Jews were just God-fearers. They did some Jewish stuff. They prayed to God. He's praying to God here at the Jewish hour of prayer at 3 p.m. He was a God-fearer. He respected the God of the Jews. And he actually acted on that. He was generous. He gave money to people. He had a prayer life. He was more Christian than many of us. And yet he wasn't a Christian yet. He was a God-fearer, not Jewish, not Christian. He's Roman. And he's in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea was an important place at the time on the coast of Israel. Uh, It probably numbered about 200,000 people at the time. It was the major port. Uh, And I have a picture 
Let's see here. I have a picture. That's what it would have looked like at the time. That's kind of a reconstruction of what it would have looked like. Now, you can go there today. It's no longer an inhabited city. It's an archaeological site. And they've done an incredible job of unearthing a whole bunch of this. Like that um, amphitheater on the right corner there. You can actually go see concerts there now. They've unearthed that whole thing. And you could go sit there and there's concerts there. And then that hippodrome where they did the horse races right there. That oval thing in the middle. You can go there and my wife and Isaiah and Daisy and I were there in 2012 and actually saw some simulated horse races and chariot stuff. And you could kind of cruise around this archaeological site and see stuff and they have really cool restaurants right on the beach where we ate. My family and I were staying um, just up the hill from here, which is where the part of Mount Carmel. And so every evening we'd go down there and cool off by the ocean and go to dinner there. It was an incredible city at the time. And you could see on the far end, the port, which was very important to Rome, very important to their work in the world and for commerce in the region. I'll show you a picture of it today. That's an aerial view of it today. So you could see kind of some of the ruins there. You could see the ruins of the breakwater and all of that. That's what it looks like now. And here's a picture of my kids there a few years ago holding up part of the ruins there. Isaiah's holding it up. Daisy on the left. Because they're so beautiful, we'll zoom in and get a closer photo. There they are. Look at them. Isaiah was just a little guy at the time. That's 2012. And of course, that's Daisy who is with Jesus on the left. But look at those stones, man. When you're in Israel, those stones are everywhere. And they're ancient, man. They're older than anything you even know about. Those stones have been there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You can go there and see that and experience that. So that was Caesarea, a very important place, about 47 miles from Jerusalem. That's where Cornelius was. He was kind of a big deal to be the commander of an Italian regiment stationed in Caesarea at this time. And he was kind of seeking God. So all of a sudden, when he's praying, this angel shows up, which is awesome. The angel said to him, Cornelius. Now we pick it up in verse 4. Cornelius stared at him in fear. Have you ever noticed in the Bible, whenever somebody sees an angel, it's always scary? Okay. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that happened and he sent them to Joppa. Pause right there. Let's be introduced to Joppa for a moment. Joppa is an ancient, ancient city uh, about 30 miles south from uh, Caesarea. Again, right on the beach there uh, when when the temple was being built and there was cedars being shipped from Lebanon to go to Jerusalem. They came in the port at Joppa. Joppa is all throughout the Bible, super, super old, and it is currently an inhabited city. It's usually called Jaffa now, but Joppa in Hebrew means beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Here's a little photo. Photo. There it is from the air. Um, And it's Again, thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. And it's beautiful. The photo doesn't do it justice. You can see the sailboats there and the pretty blue water. My wife and I have a favorite restaurant, which is 
right there. I wish I could point. And it's an awesome place to go hang out and be around and experience some Bible history. So Peter's there, and he's at a tanner's house. That's someone who deals with the hides of dead animals to prepare them for use, leather and so on and so forth. And today, when you go there, you can actually go to the tanner's house. The reason, I know, oof. The reason that people believe it's a tanner's house is because tanners, for what they did, they needed a water source within their workspace. And so there's a rare thing. There's a house right on the beach there that has a freshwater spring coming up right in it. So it's pretty obvious from this description and from that that that's the tanner's house. Y'all should go to Israel. It's awesome. So Peter's there, and then we pick it up in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Pause right there. I don't know what that means, but it seems awesome. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Pause right there. Have you ever noticed how often Peter says no to God in the Bible? It's actually unbelievable. No, Lord, Peter said. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. He was a good Jewish boy. Verse 15. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and don't hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to the house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You all are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. Associate with or visit a Gentile, which they were. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Do you get the attitude there? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. Three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. 
Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. You get that? But God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So Peter says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses who God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him and after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Pause right there. So it's clear that as Peter gives this message about Jesus, that at some point while they were hearing it, they believed in what they were hearing and they put their faith in Jesus because the Spirit came upon, yes, the Spirit came upon them. So it's clear that faith was exercised at one point there. Peter didn't do an altar call. He didn't ask for a show of hands. He didn't press for the decision as they were hearing it. They believed. Spirit came upon them. Peter's like, oh, wow. Okay, well, we should baptize you now. So baptize them. And then Peter gets in trouble for this. Look what happens now in Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, Jewish believers, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Pause right there. Now, isn't that just like people? The first question isn't like, oh my goodness, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were baptized? His whole family too? Seriously, his whole family? Like wife and kids and stuff? What about the servants in the house of them too? And he had all of his friends. It was a packed house and they all got saved, like 100% of them? Oh my goodness, that's amazing. The gospel's never gone that far. This is incredible. Peter, good job being like Jesus. You know Jesus, you know Jesus, he ate with sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. He spent time with drunkards. He went to the least likely and he preached the gospel to them. Good job, Pete, being like Jesus. Instead, they criticize him. Can't believe that you spent time with those people. So now Peter has to defend himself. And he does so just by telling the story verbatim in the next few verses. So we'll skip it. We already heard it. But we'll pick it up with his conclusion in verse 15. 
He says, and as they begin to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, he says to his brothers, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Incredible story. Very important story for salvific history because of the conclusion they come to. They should have been carrying that conclusion from Genesis chapter 12, but they just now get to it. Oh, the gospel's for the whole world. They literally just come to it right at this point. Now, here's what I want us to get from this text. I want us, we'll talk about more details, but I want us to glean some hope for God's movement in the world through us. I want us to get some hope for God's movement in the world through us. I want us to expect more from God as far as saving people in our community and in the world. I want us from this text to realize that we ought to care more about God's purposes and delight in being part of them. I want us from the light of this text to be asking God to give us a vision for the gospel going forth in our community in the world and to expect God to engage us sometimes supernaturally. Supernaturally. You know, we recently as a church were praying through Ramadan for the salvation of Muslims worldwide. And there's one particular time where they're asking God for revelation and we're praying into that that Jesus would reveal himself. God still does this kind of stuff in the world. We believe that God is doing that in response to prayer. I want us to have a vision for God to do more, the supernatural stuff, visions, prophetic leading, angels. Why not? I mean, Peter needed it to get motivated to do this thing, to cross this big hurdle. He needed this super profound vision. And I also, in light of this text, want us as a people, as the church, to be willing to invite God to confront our ideologies and our prejudices that are incompatible with God's love and God's mission. Because we all have them. And that's a problem. So I want to make something very clear, and it's this. Peter did not care for Cornelius. That's obvious from the text. It should be obvious from the background. He's like the enemy. He's Rome. He's a leader in the army. It's obvious when Peter gets there, he doesn't care. Peter shows up and he's like, listen, here's the deal. I came, so what do you want? Well, we we want to hear the word of God. Well, now it's obvious that God doesn't have favorites. That's what Peter says. That's what he literally says to these people. And then he gives the most half-hearted gospel presentation. He's like, well, you know about Jesus. He literally says, you know about Jesus. You know about what he did. And he gives them a very Jewish presentation of the gospel to these Gentiles who really would have needed some more background to get it. But Peter's saying, well, you know. And it's like the spirit just interrupts Peter and goes, Peter, you're honestly just kind of botching this gig. This is weak sauce. So I'm just going to convert these people and come upon them with power. They're going to speak in tongues. Let me just do this. I think that 
Peter's lack of care for Cornelius is palpable in the text. Because Peter had been conditioned by his religious culture to think poorly of other nationalities. They were considered impure, as the text says. Right, verse 28, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, that needs some clarification. The word law there is a different word used than we would expect if Peter were referring to the Torah or the Bible or Mosaic law. He's not referring to that law. He's referring to the tradition that surrounded that law, oral law, rabbinical law, the tradition that surrounded the Torah, which was, as we know from our studies, very common in Israel. Here's what the teachers of Israel and the rabbis and the fathers did. They endeavored to build a fence around the law. So that if the law said something, they wanted to build a fence around it so that you couldn't even get close to doing what was wrong. That was their goal with tradition and with oral law. So if the law, the Mosaic law, the Torah said, look, there's certain foods that you shouldn't eat. They would say, okay, there's, there's what we should not do. Now let's build some fences around it. We're not going to eat that food. You know who eats that food? The people up in Caesarea and the people over there and Gentiles, they eat that food. So let's put a broad fence around that prohibition. And if we don't come in contact with Gentiles, then there'll be less of a temptation to ever eat that food. Do you see what they did? So they would say, okay, listen, don't even eat with Gentiles. And then they would build another fence. Don't even associate with Gentiles. Building concentric fences around the law in an honest effort not to transgress God's law, but at some points clearly misguided. You understand? You following me? What the Mosaic law forbid was eating certain food that was considered unclean, non-kosher, we often say, and you still hear that today. It did not forbid eating with Gentiles, much less contact with them. That was an extrapolation of the law that became tradition. So then other people's status from the perspective of the Jews that they now considered impure had to do primarily with their engagement with non-kosher food and, 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 and very important, idols which Israel had a big problem with all throughout their history. So again, trying to build a fence. They worship idols. If we have nothing to do with them and stay as far away from them as we can, then we're in less danger of worshiping idols. And we see the failures of that in the Old Testament as we look at their story. A Jewish text from the time, this is not from scripture, it's Jewish writings, exhorts its readers saying, quote, keep yourself separate from the nations and do not eat with them, and do not imitate their rites, nor associate yourself with them. Imagine the tension then that that created with the words of Jesus, who said, go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see that tension that existed for Peter, for his culture, in light of his religious background? His religious background was, do not associate with the nations. His Messiah and Savior said, go to all the nations. Do you see the tension that's there culturally? We don't usually think of that. So the text is really the tale of two conversions. Yes, Cornelius and his household and all of his buddies. But before Cornelius could be converted, Peter had to experience some sort of conversion himself. 
Not to become a Christian and enter into the kingdom. He already was a Christian. He was already a child of the kingdom. Not to be saved into God's kingdom, but rather to be saved from discrimination. This is a real story behind the story. God confronting, through Peter, all of his people, God confronting in Peter what was contrary to his love and his mission. It's just the way Peter grew up. But it was not consonant with who God was and what God wanted to do. And so God confronted that. That's actually a really old story. It's interesting that in the same town that Peter was in, Joppa, 700 years before, there was another guy who didn't want to do what God wanted him to do because he didn't like certain people. Anybody remember his name? Jonah. You guys are the best church. Jonah. Isn't it interesting that 700 some years before in that same port city, this guy named Jonah heard the call of God to go preach to these people called the Ninevites and he didn't want to do it. So at Joppa, he got on a boat going in the opposite direction. He did it because he didn't like the Ninevites. And he didn't think that they were deserving of God's mercy. And gosh darn it, he knew God was merciful and that if they heard about God, God would forgive them. He didn't want that to happen for them. He thought they were excluded from God's work. He did not think they were deserving. And in thinking someone else is not deserving, we then esteem ourselves as deserving. And that's antithetical to the gospel. Jonah actually said this. This is unbelievable. Jonah makes Peter look awesome. When God saw what they did, right? He finally gets to the Ninevites after the fish eats them, all that stuff. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, just take my life away for it's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) This dude's unbelievable. Literally unbelievable. His disdain for the Ninevites and their lifestyle and their heritage and their culture and the way they lived was so real that he did not want them to experience the mercy of God. He figured they were undeserving. And so in doing so, he declares himself to be deserving. And Peter and his contemporaries, Jewish Christians, saw Gentiles, non-Jews, as impure. Again, chapter 11 So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, I can't believe you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. They saw other people as undeserving and saw themselves as deserving. When Peter says to them first thing, well, it's obvious now that God doesn't have favorites. The intimation there is, is because if he did, I would have been one of them. And that mindset of viewing himself too highly and others more lowly was a hindrance to the mission of God and it was incompatible with God's love. So God intervenes. 
God fixes it. He gives them that vision. And on that vision, the sheet comes down, and there's all these unkosher animals. He says, kill and eat. Peter says, no way. He says, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no way. He says, kill and eat. Peter and Jonah didn't really care about other people who were in danger of God's judgment, but God cared. Who do we not care about? Who do we not care about that God cares about? I think it's important as God's people in light of this text that we think about that question. What perspectives do we hold? Prejudices that are contrary to God's love and to God's mission. Who do we not care about that God cares about? I also want us to see this so that we can stop feeling guilty for a second. That even though Peter was a bit of a bigot and a bit of a jerk, God was very, very nice to him. And that's the real story. The real story is not meant to be about the goodness of Peter, but about the kindness of God. The vision of the sheet happened three times. Do you ever notice how everything for Peter happens in threes? Isn't that weird? Three times he denied the Lord. Three times Jesus says, do you love me? Three times the sheet. Now, I wonder why that is. I think it's because Peter was dull-hearted and hard-headed. Three times the thing has to happen. But I think that's the kindness of God. You know, God has the right to say, I told you once, I'm not going to say it again. Do what I said. We say it to our kids all the time, right? All the time. I already told you that. God doesn't do that. He's so kind to this slightly bigoted, a little bit jerkish, dull-headed, hard-hearted guy. I really relate with Peter. He was very kind to him. Gave it to him three times because he needed it three times. I do want to say for Peter, though, man, at least Peter had a prayer life. He was kind of a jerk, but at least he had a prayer life. He went up on the roof to pray. And roofs during those times were flat and they were a place to escape. Go up there and you get in the cool breeze of the ocean. It's a place to get away from the activity of the house. At least Peter actually had a prayer life. He goes up on the mountain to pray, which means in essence that he had a prayer life, which means in essence that he had an intentional openness toward God. He wasn't that great of a guy. He didn't get it all right. He wasn't perfect, but he did have an intentional openness toward God. That's what a prayer life is. And by the way, so did the Italian regiment commander. He was a God-fearer. He was praying at 3 p.m., which was the evening Jewish hour of prayer. What I want us to get from that is that both these guys had regular God-word rhythms. And that is meant to be part of Christianity. That is meant to be part of discipleship. Please listen to me. That we develop and we have regular God-word rhythms. time engineered, scheduled, created, given priority to in our lives where we are seeking God. A few minutes where it's not about ourselves. It's not about entertainment. It's not about our Instagram account. 
scheduled, prioritized time that is Godward, with scripture, with prayer, other things like that. Godward rhythms that open us up to what God wants to do. You know what happened when Peter went up on the roof and prayed? He was suddenly available to God. He was available to God. What about you? In what ways are you regularly making yourself available to God? You know, this whole salvation thing is about Jesus and knowing him. We haven't been saved just so we could be happy. We've been saved to know God. We're the objects of his affection. It is meant to fulfill our life in the entire universe when we know God and are known by him and restored into relationship. That's the whole point of Jesus' work upon the cross. So then the tone and the tone of our lives after that has to include some regular practice of seeking God. We are very much like Peter after all. We have our wrong prejudices. We don't care that much about certain people. We even dislike some. Because of that, we see ourselves as deserving and them as impure. And I would suggest that like Peter, we can also be rather dull-hearted and hard-headed. But hopefully we, like Peter, have some God-word practices that open us up to his work and presence. I'll just say this. It's okay to be hard-headed and dull-hearted if you're seeking the Lord. And we all hold prejudices and all have failures and we all live and think and act in certain ways that are incongruent with the love of God and the mission of God. We're all in that same boat. The way forward is to seek the Lord. God loved Peter. That's why he met him on the roof is because he loved him. At no point, is, Peter mad, is God mad at Peter? God loves Peter. He knew his creepy little heart and he loved him still. He loved Peter with all of his messy contradictions and God loves us. He knows our hearts. He knows that stuff. He loves us. And God is working on the other end to convert the least likely to be saved. We've been talking about the least likely to be saved a lot in our study of Acts. And we talk about a lot as a church, as, as a church, as the least reached in the world. All the places where the gospel hasn't been. God's at work there. The least reached in the world, the unreached, in our community, least likely to be saved. And somehow, God is working to convert certain thought patterns and characteristics in us that are contrary to his love and when dealt with will further engage us in his mission. Like sometimes God is confronting our love of money. You know, sometimes it's the love of money that keeps me from serving the Lord more. There's not that much money in it. Sometimes it's my intense desire for affluence and comfort. I don't want to be uncomfortable ever. I mean, do you? Who here loves discomfort? Raise your hand. That would be uncomfortable if you raised your hand. (laughs) I have my own plans and how I want to see my life turn out. I have bigger, better things I want to buy. I have other people whose favor I want to curry. 
I want people to speak well of me. I want to have a reputation. All that stuff that you deal with, that we all deal with, sometimes they are contrary to God's love and God's mission. And I want to suggest to us that if we have regular rhythms of being open to the work of God through his word and through prayer and other ways, God will lovingly confront and work to convert those things. Please, God, deal with my love of money. Please, God, deal with my intense desire for comfort and reputation. And please, God, somehow supernaturally confront my apathy, my overwhelming apathy. Because God loves us, he wants to do that. And some of us realize the incongruence in our hearts, the ways that our character and our longings are so different from who Christ would have us be and what he has for us. And we're actually longing for God to deal with those things and we're longing to hear from God, but we very seldom put ourselves in the place to do so. That's a problem. You've got to go up on the roof. You've got to go into prayer at 3 p.m., so to speak. You know, it is so much the rhythm of this culture that I've witnessed. I don't have an iPhone and I don't have Instagram, but I have witnessed that many people wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is look at Instagram. And then they're going to bed at night and the last thing they do is they look at Instagram. Now that then forms and shapes us. That forms and shapes us. Just like we be formed and shaped, the first thing that we did in the morning was open scripture and the last thing we did at night was open scripture. That would form and shape us. But we're being shaped and formed by other things. And when I say we are shaped and formed, I mean our appetites, our desires, our proclivities, our sense of priorities and what is important. And so if the first thing we do is look at Instagram and the false best lives now that are presented there, and that's the last thing we do, what is that forming in us? That is forming in us jealousy. That is forming in us lust. That is forming in us greed. That is forming and forcing us into decisions of who is impure and who's not, who is deserving and who isn't. And the goal at the end of the day is to get more followers. And I don't want to sound like the old fuddy-duddy who's 46 and doesn't have social media and doesn't know what I'm talking about. I am simply saying that more often than not, we need to put ourselves in places of hearing from God and being formed by God because we are walking bundles of mess. But we are loved by God. And he wants to work on us and in us even when we're hungering for the wrong things. Isn't it cool that Peter was on the roof and he's praying and he got hungry? Can anybody relate? Like when I sit down to pray, I think of everything else that's going on in my world and my body and my mind. I once heard Chuck Smith say that when he goes to pray, he takes a notepad with him because the moment he starts to pray, something else comes to his mind about what he should do or who he forgot to call or that thing that he wanted or that thing on Insta- uh, Amazon Prime. They didn't have it back then, but whatever. And he takes a notepad and he just will write those things down. Oh yeah, I got to call so-and-so. Oh, I'm thinking about that. Okay, this, that. So eventually he gets all that other junk out and he could start to pray. Peter was just like Chuck. Chuck is just like us. We start to pray and we're like, oh, I haven't eaten a while. Oh, they're making pita bread down below and hummus. Oh, 
Literally says Peter's praying and he gets hungry. He's like, well, they're making the food anyway. I'll pray till they're done. And I love that God is so nice that he meets Peter in his distracted, hungry, carnal prayer. Story is not about how awesome Peter was. It's not. Story is about how kind God is. He is. He meets him there and gives him a very deep revelation, experience, and call that was transformative to Peter, the church, and the whole world. And I want us to believe that God has something for us. God has something for you. God has something more for you than you're currently experiencing. There's something that God wants you to be awoken to. There's something that God wants to have awoken in you. Something more than the way we're living and what we're living for. God has a work to do in us and through us for his glory because he loves us. So he was helping Peter and he was helping Cornelius. And when it wasn't going that great, God just intervened and said, wham, here's the Holy Spirit. Stories about God working, God helping, God saving, and God's mission. But on both ends of it, we're messy people. Welcome to the club. The one thing I will say positive about Peter today is he did obey. When he got the vision and the Holy Spirit said go and the guys said come, he obeyed. We've got to obey Jesus, man. Some of you are getting called to the nations. You've got to obey. Some of you are getting called in different ways. You've you got to obey. You've got to obey Jesus. And I love that Peter was flexible in it. Right? There's the guys at the door. Oh, are oh, you going to stay? Okay, yeah, no problem. Stay. Oh, we're going to go to Caesarea? Gosh, that's 30 miles away. Okay, who's driving? Oh, nobody's driving? We don't have cars yet? Okay, I'll walk 30 miles he gets there. Oh, wow, it's a full house, huh, Cornelius? You invited all your friends? Okay, so you want to hear me preach now? Okay, I'll preach now. Peter, for all of his faults, was obedient and flexible, and subsequently, he was greatly used by God to literally change the world. God loves you. May he change the world through you for the glory of Jesus. Thank you, God, for your great mercy in the text. and your great mercy toward us. Please, God, make us more aware of your presence. Your presence in our lives, your presence in our community, your presence in our messes. Teach us to quiet ourselves before you and discern your call. Give us grace to obey and follow you and then Lord just lovingly today and in the days to come will you confront the stuff in us that is inconsistent with your love and your mission because you love us make us more like Jesus Lord